0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. And this is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. We're going to be going over things related to the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to improve your relationships, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense out of media reports into the latest developments for potential new treatments for mental illness and new insights into its causes. Along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health-related issues, and reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis, bringing that to you without the hype and distortion of other media mental health sources, and with the benefit of more than 20 years of the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back again. appreciate your tuning in to tonight's podcast. Hope that you had an excellent Thanksgiving celebration and uh, enjoyed the time with friends and family and didn't overindulge too much, or if you did, that you aren't racked with guilt about it, because let's face it, that's not going to help, right? Well, in any case, I hope your holiday was good, that you had a lot to be thankful for. And one of the things that... I came across, over the Thanksgiving break, is going to be the first item on tonight's podcast. This is something that anyone who is concerned for the mental health of our military and veterans can be thankful for. They certainly are thankful for at least the ones who are involved in this program that I'm going to tell you about. And it's something of very, very local interest here in Atlanta, because it has to do with a program for veterans at the Georgia Aquarium. The um, <clears throat> Veterans Immersion Program at the Georgia Aquarium, to be specific, uh, the aquarium has provided this adjunctive therapy to complement current rehabilitation and re- reintegration programs for our uh, recent veterans and there are exercises that uh, the dive masters at the Georgia Aquarium lead the veterans in to help our servicemen and women overcome trauma and deal with difficult memories and the participants dive in the aquarium. The Georgia Aquarium, if you didn't know, is one of the largest in the world. And the participants encounter the animals, some of which are extremely enormous. We have some whale sharks in our aquarium, and they're about as big as a school bus. And they relax and move in the water in ways they may not be able to on land. And I thought, this is just such a wonderful program. And uh, unfortunately, all too often... When I bring you a veterans and military mental health update, the news is not good. So thankfully, uh, this time I've got some very good news about this program. Now the articles from the uh, American uh, Atlanta Journal Constitution, uh, that came out on Thanksgiving Day. Um, <clears throat> so I'll just describe what they're talking about, about this program and they use, uh, The examples of several real-life veterans who have gone through it, and it's interesting to hear their stories and how they react to the program. Mike Hilliard was clearing IEDs, improvised explosive devices, in central Iraq near Camp Falcon in 2006. When he was shot in the head, the bullet from an AK-style rifle somehow grazed off his helmet. He said, only the chin strap rivet saved my life. Uh, Still, Sergeant Hillard ended up with a brain injury due to the uh, impact, and the stress of that experience stayed with him when he left the military, and he slipped into what he calls a black hole. He found an unexpected respite when he went scuba diving in the Dominican Republic. He said, as soon as my head went underwater, it changed my life. It took away everything that was on my shoulders. Now, Hilliard helps other veterans in a Georgia Aquarium program that began in 2008. I was surprised uh, when I read that this started back in 2008. I had not read anything about this before, and to think it's been going on eight years was kind of surprising. Recently, after some instruction from Hilliard, Army veteran Danielle Skoog sat on the edge of a dock with her feet in 75 degree water and pushed off. Putting the regulator between her lips, she stretched out face down in the Georgia Aquarium's 6.3 million gallon ocean voyager pool. The biggest aquarium tank, I think, in existence, if I'm not mistaken, while unknown creatures twirled below, she was staring and floating and felt something change inside. She said, I lost track of everything, except that there were all these fish around me, beaming after a half-hour swim in the chilly tank. Skoog, who still feels the effects of a traumatic brain injury from when she was in the service in 2004, was one of a group of eight veterans who, who recently donned wetsuits and took a leisurely float at the downtown Atlanta attraction as giant manta rays and sea turtles soared in their midst and playful whale sharks bumped into a chosen few. The exercise is one among many innovative therapies that are helping servicemen and women overcome trauma and deal with difficult memories. According to the National Center for Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, between 11% and 20% of veterans who served in operations Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. The aquarium also hosts patients recovering from spinal cord injuries. About 1,600 veterans have participated in what retired Army medic Kathy Ashley describes as an awe-inspiring experience. Ashley joined the Army when she was a young woman and served with the 54th Engineers Battalion in Iraq, a senior medic. She treated many fellow soldiers as well as civilians. The stress of that time is still very close to the surface for her. She found the swim at the Georgia Aquarium soothing, but also exhilarating. A manta ray brushed against my shoulder, she said afterward, and all the adrenaline just whoosh, rushed through my body because it's a manta ray. Other veterans reported the same response. They found the experience enjoyable, not strictly because it was relaxing, but also because it was exciting. It allows the chemicals in your body to start firing again, Hillary said. Uh, Sorry, Hilliard. A lot of us are a bit of adrenaline junkies, he added. You take somebody who's never dove before, put them in the water, tell them to breathe underwater. That's an adrenaline rush right there. The biggest rush for some of these swimmers was floating along the 10-ton whale sharks. I'm six foot 230 pounds. I'm a big guy, said veteran David Singleton, standing at the edge of the pool as the silent giants glided past. But maybe I'm not so big. If you don't believe in God, go down there. It will change your perspective. These veterans were part of the Wounded Warrior Project, but other organizations also send veterans to the aquarium for immersion therapy including the Veterans Affairs Medical Centers in Atlanta and St. Louis. Vanessa Chaney, watching from the underwater acrylic tunnel as her husband floated above, was tentative about seeing those big fish circling the divers. Her husband David also had reservations. She said with a smile, he was just hoping that the sharks had already been fed. Whale sharks are not the typical sharks you think of. They eat mostly krill and plankton, so fortunately, David was safely off the menu. Cheney, who was hit by an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan in 2010, while on patrol with the 5th Striker Brigade, has been through dangerous situations. This wasn't one of them. He said, it was very relaxing, very therapeutic. Despite the large monsters looking around them, the dive gave these swimmers a feeling of safety hard to find elsewhere. Hilliard said that that's because the environment is so alien as to be completely unrecognizable. Um, here's a telling quote from Hilliard. He says, As we walk around on earth on dry land, there's always something that will remind you of something bad that happened. You see a piece of trash in the middle of the road and you think, IED. But while you're in the water, you don't have any of those triggers. There is nothing there to remind you of all the bad things you've been through and seen. It lets them realize they can drop their guard for a little while. Susan Oglesby is a certified recreation therapist and is in charge of dive immersion at the aquarium. She says, when you look down and eight inches from your nose is a 20-foot shark, you think you're thinking about IEDs or their mortgage? No, that's what's so therapeutic about it. Skoog, who was all smiles after the swim, said she had one more goal. I want to take some of that calm home with me, she said. I want to make it last through traffic. Wow. Good luck with that, with Atlanta traffic heading from downtown, wherever you're going. Uh, but hopefully she was able to. Uh, you know, I think it's great that this program exists. And for those of you who want to learn more about it, again, it's called Veterans Immersion Program. It's at the Georgia Aquarium, which is right there in downtown Atlanta, uh, right in the same patch of land as Coca-Cola Museum, uh, the College Football Hall of Fame, Human Rights Museum, and of course, most famously, the uh, <clears throat> Centennial Olympic Park. And uh, a great program. Uh, if you know someone who might benefit from it, I encur- encourage you uh, to look into it. All right. Well, with that, we're going to take our first commercial break. We'll come back and have more mental health-related news. And I'm not done with military and veterans' mental health updates either, You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break.
2: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four
3: members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear, in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up, we have more military and veterans mental health update for you active duty military find post-traumatic stress disorder relief through individual cognitive therapy one-on-one therapy eliminated the PTSD diagnosis for almost half of trial participants that type of success rate is nearly unheard of in a psychotherapy type clinical trial now This is significant because most therapy, especially done at VA clinics, Veterans Administration's clinics, is group, not individual. Why there should be a difference is somewhat of a concern, if you ask me. A lot of people mistakenly think group therapy is a lesser treatment. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions about it. Well, I don't want to be in a group. I want to just be one-on-one. Isn't that better? Well, it's not better or worse. It's very different. There are very different types of treatments. Individual therapy works. So does group. They work in different ways. they are different treatments. They have their different benefits. Uh, so when I saw this article, that issue immediately caught my eye. Well, why is there a difference? Well, let's get into the data and see if they explain that or not. Although both group and individual therapy can ease post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD symptoms in active-duty military service members, individual therapy relieved PTSD symptoms better and quicker, according to a study led by a Duke University School of Medicine researcher. The randomized clinical trial is the largest to date to examine an evidence-based treatment for active duty military service members with 268 participants from the United States Army's Fort Hood in Killeen, Texas. Findings were published on November the 23rd in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry. The study analyzed the effectiveness of 6 weeks of cognitive processing therapy, and found that nearly half of the participants in one-on-one therapy improved so much, they no longer carried a PTSD diagnosis. Almost 40% of the participants in group sessions also dropped their PTSD diagnosis after six weeks. But that's a difference of 10%, and that's rather significant. For some of the participants, they could see a change just by looking at them, as though they had been unburdened. Some people think that you have to go to therapy for years to address PTSD, but in this large scale clinical trial with this cognitive processing therapy, they saw a large percentage of patients show significant improvements and even recover from PTSD in a matter of weeks. CPT examines how an individual thinks about a traumatic event and how that affects their emotions. Again, it stands for Cognitive Processing Therapy. They look at what people have been saying to themselves about the trauma, which in people with PTSD can be distorted, Many of them think there's something they could have done differently to prevent the trauma. That's very true. In fact, in my own patients who have PTSD for one reason or another, be it military service, um, fire, flood, rape, what have you, they often will relive the situation and think something they could have done differently would have prevented the trauma. A car accident, that's another common one. When it's rare that that's ever the case. So the idea of the CPT technique is to teach people how to examine their thoughts and feel their natural emotions instead of feelings such as guilt or blame that may result from distorted thinking. It helps them go back and look at the evidence. And once they think in a more balanced, factual way, their emotions and symptoms of PTSD subside. Okay. So far, I'm still not clear why individual would work better than group. Let's read on. To measure effectiveness in active duty military members, the trial was established through Strong Star Consortium a multi-institutional initiative to develop and evaluate effective prevention, detection, and treatment of combat-related PTSD. The consortium is funded by the United States Department of Defense. Cognitive behavioral therapies, such as CPT and prolonged exposure therapy, are the leading treatments for PTSD with the most scientific support for their effectiveness. However, both were developed primarily for civilians, and until the Strong Star Consortium was developed, they had never been evaluated in clinical trials with an active-duty military population. The study shows that CPT is effective, but it still needs to be adapted and tailored in ways that increase its effectiveness with combat-related PTSD so that more patients can fully recover. Let me just take a moment to explain prolonged exposure therapy. Uh, This is commonly used in treatment of many anxiety disorders, including PTSD, which is classified as an anxiety disorder. And this is where you repeatedly expose the person to the stimulus that provokes their anxiety and teach them techniques of relaxation and mindfulness such that they will no longer react to the stimulus with the same anxiety. And you lengthen the exposure gradually over time until the idea is anyway that the anxiety uh, resolves itself. (laughs) Now... It's a controversial issue in that there are some veterans who feel it was very helpful and others who found uh, that they didn't like it at all, that it made them feel worse, and yet um, it's been uh, a mainstay of the treatment for PTSD in VA clinics. So the need for other therapies is definitely there. Now, back to this study, about half of the participants were assigned to group therapy, including 90-minute sessions twice a week for six weeks. The other half met one-on-one with a therapist for 60-minute sessions twice a week for six weeks. Okay, so the group therapy, again, 180 minutes a week for six weeks, The individual therapy, 120 minutes twice a week for six weeks, the difference being in individual, of course, it's just one-on-one with the therapist as opposed to uh, the others in the group with the therapist. But on the other hand, the others in the group are helping support everyone there as well. Independent evaluators used standard PTSD diagnostic tools to measure the severity of PTSD and associated conditions such as depression and suicidal thoughts. The participants were evaluated before and during treatment with a follow-up six months after the treatment was over. For all participants, PTSD-related symptoms such as nightmares, intrusive thoughts, or being easily startled improved. Overall, about 50% of participants experienced such improvement that they no longer met the criteria for a PTSD diagnosis, although many still had some symptoms, particularly trouble sleeping. Those who attended individual therapy saw more significant improvements in the severity of their PTSD symptoms and the improvements were seen more quickly. So everybody got better. It's just that the people in individual therapy got better faster and with in greater uh, frequency. The implication in my mind is that if they had carried the trial on for the group therapy folks a longer time than twelve weeks, perhaps they would have caught up to the individual therapy participants and their uh, remission rate from PTSD symptoms would have also reached 50 percent. The study also showed that when subjects received group or individual therapy they had equal reductions in depression and suicidal thinking. These results continued through a six-month follow-up. The findings are based on the total 268 participants who enrolled and intended to complete the full six-week program. Overall results include about 9% participants who did not begin treatment due to military deployment or other reasons and participants who received fewer than 12 sessions. The findings, although encouraging, show that many participants still had lingering symptoms after six weeks of treatment and about half retained their PTSD diagnosis. Further research will also allow researchers to refine the therapy, considering any specific adjustments for active duty service members, such as varying the number of weeks patients would participate. Researchers with the Strong Star Consortium will also expand on the research by evaluating the roles of substance abuse and traumatic brain injury on patients' outcomes. So at least from this article about the study, we don't really know why it is that the individual therapy worked better than group therapy. Uh, but still, uh, if results like this can be replicated, it would be difficult for VA clinics to treat these folks to ignore that. Uh, I would think they would have to pay attention for it and adjust the way they conduct treatment to include more individual therapy, to help people get better faster, Um, and then maybe once they have a good foundation uh, of improvement, they might be able to continue in group therapy um, to uh, continue their rehabilitation and continue to get rid of more of their symptoms. Well, uh, for these first two items that we've talked about on tonight's podcast, it's good news as far as, uh, more and better treatment for ptsd for our recent military and combat veterans and we'll have more mental health related news after this next commercial break you are listening to psychiatry today with dr scott
2: your auto love and investment demands the best and for 45 years passport transport has been meeting those demands from manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport.
4: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
5: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not... or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. With your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. I found this next item in the personal finance advice section, but when I looked at it and read it over, I said, well, this is also very good mental health advice, even though... It's set up to be personal finance advice. And I think you'll see what I mean when we get into it. It's about preparing for retirement, about managing personal finance. And the advice is don't try to keep up with the Joneses on social media. Those exotic trips your friends are taking could break your bank and they might not be as great as they look. Now, of course, the article is focusing on spending too much money to finance a lifestyle as lavish as what you see your friends having through their social media posts. But to my way of thinking, it's also the uh, sense of anxiety and envy and frustration and depression that can result From looking at other people's lives through their social media posts and comparing them to yours. Uh, Over the years, there have been many articles written about this and even coining the term Facebook depression to describe it. So let's take a look at this issue through the lens of a personal finance expert. Here are some do's and don'ts that are offered. Do be happy that your friends are living well. Remember that every photo is cropped and often there are many outtakes. Do remember that their story is different from yours. They have faced different obstacles and you see only less than half of the picture. Do not compare your blooper reel with their highlights. Do not minimize your own strengths, loves, or adventures. And do not forget that the brag books of social media are often ways to compensate for feelings of emptiness and isolation. Okay, good advice. And again, all of those do's and don'ts have nothing to do with anything related to your finances. But it's how you might see yourself or compare yourself unfavorably to others on social media, unless you take that advice. <clears throat> well, the article says, if it hasn't happened yet, it likely will at some point in your online life. Um, fellow retirees and pre-retirees will post pictures of their travels and adventures to exotic places. The... Jokul Sarlon Glacier Lagoon in Iceland, and if I'm mispronouncing that, I'm sorry, Nature's Valley in South Africa, Machu Picchu in the Galapagos Islands, and you, not wanting to miss out on all the fun, might want to do the very same and then some. What do experts say about keeping up with the Joneses? One in four adults with social media accounts find themselves envious after seeing other people's vacation photos and pictures of expensive purchases posted online, according to a survey conducted by the Harris Poll. Also, consider that everyone's at risk of falling victim to such stories. Underneath every financial decision, there is a story we are telling ourselves. Social comparisons can drain your bank account. And I will add, they can also drain your emotions as well. They can be dangerous in terms of our sense of identity and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are in comparison with others. Materialistic values are associated with lower well-being as well as higher debt-to-income ratios and, I will add, increased stress. We're highly sensitive to relative comparisons, and that's pretty much doomed to make us unhappy unless we focus our attention elsewhere. And that comes from the head of behavioral science at Morningstar, the mutual fund company. So what can you do to protect yourself from social comparisons that might cause you to ruin your best-laid retirement plans or just make you feel bad about yourself? What you see on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, LinkedIn, and Twitter may be a facade. When we see a social media thread or post, we are seeing a story That someone else is telling about their lives. That story is the heavily edited highlight reel of their lives, and it doesn't tell the whole tale. We do not see their debt or savings or the sleepless nights. We don't see the pit in their stomach when they open their credit card bill, but we see the smiling faces when they treat their kids to a beach vacation. We see a photo and tell ourselves the story of their amazing lives. And then we compare it to our own personal story and we decide that we fall short. And what you don't know is the real story. They may have saved up for years to buy that boat or they may have maxed out their credit cards to take the family on that trip. We see priceless memories and suddenly we are willing to throw away our own security in attempt to get the emotional bliss we think our friends have achieved. And even if that isn't the case, all too often when people see these posts, they compare their own stories unfavorably to what they see in front of them and feel anxious and depressed and have poor self-esteem. So the advice of the article, again, it's a personal finance advice article, is to focus on your own finances. But I think it's applicable more broadly. Focus on your own life and family and pursuits. Enjoy the photos of family and friends on social media, but don't let jealousy and envy get the better of you. Instead, Focus on your own finances and what you can do or not do with your money. Social media is sizzle. It fades quickly. Focus on the components that really matter to your finances and, I would add, the things that really matter to your emotional satisfaction. In reframing the issues, Instead of looking at how peers and others spend money or just live their lives, look at how they save. Change your reference points to friends who are responsible savers and modest spenders. This is from a partner at Behavioral Research Consulting. The effects might serve you well. So there you have it. Um, Instead of wallowing in envy and jealousy and low self-esteem when looking at social media posts enjoy them and focus on what you have and what you can do and uh... again the personal finance people emphasize their part of it being don't try to keep up with them and spend yourself needlessly into debt and that will certainly add to your stress and a negative emotional state. Now, this is very timely advice, given that uh, people tend to post a lot of things on social media about their vacations and family get-togethers over the holidays, and also because around this time of year, unfortunately, too many people overspend on holiday gifts And then start the year, start the new year behind the eight ball in debt and uh, taking many months to catch up from all the money they spent over the holidays. Try not to put yourself behind that eight ball. Next up on psychiatry today. An article about how depression in young people affects their stomach and anxiety affects their skin. Now, what caught my eye about this article is how commonly I've seen over my career in psychiatry that when there is some sort of mental health problem, it affects the body in some way. This is why I've always preached that there really is not any distinction between so-called mental illness versus physical illness. It's a meaningless distinction. The body is the body. It is all physical, ultimately. Uh, The brain is the physical organ that is responsible for mental processes, states of mood and emotion. So it is all physical, and the two words are just a meaningless distinction. Moreover, it is remarkable how certain illnesses will always cause physical symptoms. Anxiety, in particular, almost always finds some sort of physical outlet. Some people with anxiety uh, have muscle tension, and this can cause spasms or pain in various different parts of the body. For some people, it's their neck, which uh, the muscles in the neck insert into the back of the skull. This can cause headaches. Sometimes the anxiety can cause migraine headaches. Muscle pain and tension in the neck and upper back and shoulders, or the lower back. Um, Quite commonly, anxiety can cause gastrointestinal problems, uh, and this can result in uh, aggravation of reflux or heartburn or irritable bowel syndrome. And also, as we'll hear in this article, certain states of anxiety which affects the immune system can result in skin reactions. Uh, People have gotten full-blown hives just from anxiety. And again, this is because of connections between the brain, the immune system, and the immune cells within the skin. Uh, In fact, there are a whole group of illnesses called neurodermatitis um, that can be caused uh, by uh, certain stressful states of mind. And then also they talk about in the article how depression can affect the stomach as well as the anxieties uh, states that we talked about before. Uh, so we'll get into that after our next commercial break, and we'll have more mental health-related news as well. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. We'll be right back after this short break.
5: or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
3: On Kindle or paperback through
0: Amazon.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, talking about how mental disorders and physical diseases frequently go hand-in-hand. For the first time, psychologists have identified temporal patterns in young people, uh, meaning time-related patterns. Arthritis and diseases of the digestive system are more common after depression, while anxiety disorders tend to be followed by skin diseases. Physical diseases and mental disorders affect a person's quality of life and present a huge challenge for the healthcare system. If physical and mental disorders systematically co-occur from an early age, there is a risk that the sick child or adolescent will suffer from untoward developments. In a project financed by the Swiss National Science Foundation, a research group has now examined this temporal pattern in relationship Between Physical Diseases and Mental Disorders in Children and Young People. In the journal PLOS One, they analyzed data from a representative sample of almost 6,500 teenagers from the United States aged between 13 and 18. The researchers noted that some physical diseases tend to occur more frequently in children and adolescents if they have previously suffered from certain mental disorders. Likewise, certain mental disorders tend to occur more frequently after the onset of particular physical diseases. Affective disorders, such as depression, were frequently followed by arthritis and diseases of the digestive system. While the same relationship existed between anxiety disorders and skin diseases. Anxiety disorders were more common if the person had already suffered from heart disease. A close association was also established for the first time between epileptic disorders and subsequent eating disorders. <clears throat> that was unexpected when I first read the article. Uh, the results offer important insights into the causal relationship between mental disorders and physical diseases. The newly identified temporal associations draw attention to processes that could be relevant both to the origins of physical diseases and mental disorders and to their treatment. In an earlier study, the same authors had already provided evidence for the relationship between mental disorders and and physical diseases in young people. And for the first time, it was established that epilepsy is followed by an increased risk of eating disorders, a phenomenon that had previously been described only in single case reports. This suggests that approaches to epilepsy treatment could also have potential in the context of eating disorders, From a health policy perspective, the findings underscore that the treatment of mental disorders and physical diseases should be closely interlinked from an early age on. Well, at the very least, the take-home point from the study is if you see children or adolescents or young people uh, who suffer from either arthritis or digestive diseases, they need to be screened for depression. And likewise, if they suffer from skin diseases, they need to be screened for anxiety. And now, and again, this is somewhat unexpected to say the least, those who have eating disorders need to be screened for epilepsy. Very interesting finding. Um, There is a potential connection there insofar as uh, there is an area of the brain that regulates appetite, and uh, it's the uh, satiety center in the hypothalamus. And uh, perhaps an abnormality there that could also cause seizures would result in eating disorders. It is theorized that such a link is the reason why the antidepressant Welbutrin uh, increases the risk of seizures in people with eating disorders, that there's something inherently wrong to begin with in at least that one area of the hypothalamus of these patients. And well-be-trim uh, is just the wrong stimulus to uh, give to those patients and it might bring on the seizures. Very interesting stuff. But even just bringing it back to the generalities in, that the study entails, it's a very clear reminder that there are decided links between mental illness, so-called mental illness, and physical illnesses. And uh, the links are are there, they're strong, they're valid, and uh, a lot more than many people would care to acknowledge, especially those who continue to think that there is no such thing as mental illness, that it's all in someone's head. Nothing could be further than the truth. <clears throat> All right. Well, next up on Psychiatry Today, um, an article I came across having to do with how depression in pregnancy affects the brain of the developing fetus. Uh, regular and long-time listeners to the show will be aware that I often discuss research into the effects of mental illness and psychiatric medications in pregnancy because this is a very difficult issue that women who are of childbearing age are increasingly having to confront. Um, They take medication for anxiety or depression or bipolar disorder, but they still want to have children and they maybe want to nurse those children. And this brings up very difficult decisions about uh, what the safety risks are to the child. And again, you have to consider not just the safety risks of the medication, but the safety risks of the mother's uh, perhaps untreated or suboptimally treated mental health problems. So let's take a look at this latest research. Higher levels of maternal depressive symptoms prenatally and postpartum have been linked to the thinning of the cerebral cortex in young children according to new research. So there you have it, a smoking gun, if I ever heard one, as far as the negative effects of maternal depression and a strong argument to advocate for appropriate treatment of depression in pregnant women. Now, that might not always include medication. We'll get to that later. The findings suggest that maternal depression in pregnancy could adversely affect a child's brain development underscoring the importance of treating depression in pregnant women. They found an association between brain structure in the kids and maternal depressive symptoms. So while it cannot be said that the depressive symptoms cause this, there's definitely something different structurally in the brains of kids whose moms were more depressed. Prenatal and postpartum depression in moms has negative consequences for kids in terms of things like behavior and learning. And in fact, the kids have higher risks of mental health problems themselves. So the brain structure is of interest because it can tell us a little bit about potential mechanisms, help us understand why maternal depression is associated with such outcomes in kids. The study was, will be published in the December issue of Biological Psychiatry. The investigators studied 52 women for whom the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale scores were available during each trimester of pregnancy and at three months postpartum. Their children underwent MRI scans at age 2.6 to 5.1 years. The investigators examined associations between maternal depressive symptoms and MRI measures of the thickness of the cortex and white matter structure in the brains of the children. They found that the cortical thickness in two areas of the right hemisphere of the brain was negatively correlated with second trimester maternal depressive symptoms after controlling for the child's age, sex, gestational age, and weight at birth, as well as maternal post-secondary education, meaning that this change in the cortical thickness of that area of the brain was higher if the mother had more depression. The correlations with second tr- trimester Edinburgh postnatal depression scale scores remain strong after controlling for the postpartum scores. Depression during the first and third trimesters were not significantly related to the cortical thickness. In addition, the structural patterns in the children's white matter were different, suggesting that mothers who are more depressed have a more mature pattern of brain structure. The gray matter was thinner, and we know with age that's what happens. So it looks like the kids whose mothers are more depressed have this premature pattern of brain structure, almost like their brains are developing too soon, with the consequence that their brains are losing the flexibility and adaptability that other kids might have. When you're young, your brain can learn more easily than when you're old, But if the brains in these kids are maturing too quickly, it may interfere with developing new skills, learning new languages, and so on. Most of the women wouldn't be diagnosed with depression. They were women with a typical pregnancy. It's hard to prove causation, but it really supports the idea of treating women to maintain optimal mental health. Now, of course, there's a lot of focus on postpartum depression, but prenatal depression is quite common and also is important to developing child's structures, including that of the brain. In utero is a very vulnerable time, and this is when a person's mental health uh, might be most vulnerable. The prenatal stress through these structural changes in the brain could lead to mental health problems later on. And the problem is quite prevalent since too few people who have depression get adequate treatment. One in five people meet diagnostic criteria for depression in their lifetime, and women have twice as more depression as men. And among women who are pregnant or recently given birth, the rate of depression doubles to roughly four times the rate of men. So there's an underdiagnosed and undertreated depression in women, and therefore this is a major public health concern. So could medications have prevented this? Well, they didn't find that to be the case. But that's because only one of the women was on medication. So while the study can't answer that question, it certainly recommends any treatment, psychotherapy, neurostimulation, or antidepressant medication. Well, and with that, we're going to wrap up tonight's podcast. Hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it interesting and informative. And I hope that until we get together next time, you have a wonderful and stress-free week. But if not then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. Thanks for listening.
4: This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.